You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So I don't know how many of you had the privilege, as I did, to live in New York City, uh, BBE. That's before the Bloomberg era. Michael Bloomberg was the mayor of New York, <clears throat> the most recent uh, mayor of New York before the current mayor of New York, uh, and he was known for, uh, for really sort of uh, trying to clean up the atmosphere of New York, right? make it uh, more family-friendly, uh, make it uh, more uh, uh, healthy, etc., etc. He sometimes got flack for it. And one of the things that Mayor Bloomberg did was uh, ban smoking in bars. And this did not uh, go without uh, a, a little bit of uh, criticism of the mayor for banning smoking in bars. There were smokers all over New York City that you know, were huddled on street corners, uh, very angry at Mayor Bloomberg for this. Uh, I, was, I, I, I was not one who was uh, 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 criticizing Mayor Bloomberg for the, I was enjoying uh, going to places where I could uh, eat and drink without uh, cigarettes smoking my face. But I was listening to a comedy performance of a woman who I think hit this very succinctly. She talked about Mayor Bloomberg banning smoking in bars and restaurants in New York, and then noted the irony that he then, you know, he made a press conference where he said, I'm banning smoking in bars, and then an hour later got on his private jet to fly somewhere. And she said, doesn't he know that the air from outside makes the air inside? Right? Just because you clean up the air inside doesn't mean that uh, you have the ability to totally pollute the air outside. And what she's getting at in a humorous way is the fact that in ways that we don't always think about, we are totally interconnected. Inside is, in, is interconnected with outside. My life is intertwined in your life, and our lives here are intertwined with the lives of people all over the world in ways that sometimes we realize and sometimes we don't realize. But I once asked a class of sixth graders to name for me the countries with which they associate on a, uh, on a given day. And they said, you know, America. Maybe some of them said Israel. Some of them maybe, maybe said Britain if they had a British teacher. But then I asked them, okay, look at the tag on the shirt you're wearing and tell me where it's made. Now look at the inscription on your iPhone and tell me where it's made. Now go to the grocery store, go home where your parents brought the groceries home and look at the packages on your food, on your produce and tell me where it's made. And you'll see that in ways that you often don't ever realize you're interacting with people and impacting people all over the world and people all over the world are impacting you. We live in a totally interconnected and interrelated world. So I noticed this for the first time in my life when I was in college, and I went on a trip led by American Jewish World Service, which is an incredible organization uh, that, uh, uh, from a place of Jewish values, sends Jews all over the world uh, to uh, help with development projects in the developing world. Um, and 
tries to sponsor uh, local initiatives, grassroots projects uh, for sustainable development. It's not like a, an aid organization where like, you know, a, a, like a, a team of doctors or will go to a place and help people who are in need. I mean, that's an important thing too. But it's, a, it's an organization that helps to fund grassroots ground up projects in, de in developing countries. So I went to Honduras with American Jewish World Service. And it was the first time in my life that I ever encountered, ever experienced the level of poverty that you can see in places like Central America or Asia uh, or Africa. And American Jewish World Service does projects in all of those areas. I happened to go to Honduras. The first time I ever encountered that kind of poverty. And as I participated in the building of a school over the course of a week, I got to know some of the people in the community and learned with educators who had spent years in the community learning the issues and what was contributing to the cycles of poverty that existed in countries like Honduras. And one of the issues has to do with the trade system that we have. We have, and in a lot of very good ways, a free trade system. There are taxes, there are tariffs, there are things that make it not so free, but we try ever since you know, the 80s, 90s, to encourage more and more free trade. The problem with free trade is it's a lot good for a lot of things. What it doesn't do is protect people in developing countries from the exploitations of the market. Right? And in an open market, there's always going to be some kind of exploitation uh, as a byproduct of the production of goods. And so in developing countries like Honduras that are able to produce uh, cheap goods for developed countries like the United States, because they have lax labor laws, they have uh, uh, shoddy enforcement, etc., 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 it's possible to have uh, whole industries that are built basically on slave labor or indentured servitude within our system. So that same class that I, of sixth graders that I talked about, how, which countries do you interact with on a daily basis? I also did an exercise with them. There's a website that you can go to. It's an incredible resource. Um, now I can't remember the name of the website, but uh, you can Google it. It's uh, how many slaves do you own? And the premise of the website is that it takes an account of your lifestyle. You know, how many electronic devices you have, what kind of clothes you wear, where you shop, what you eat. And based on the answers that you give to those questions, estimates how many slaves were used in the production of the goods and services that we utilize every single day. And the kids were rightly astonished. Right? They live in a country in which slavery was eradicated in 1865, even though, unfortunately, slavery still persists in a lot of uh, horrible forms in this country, uh, just not legally. But they were surprised, right? Slavery was gone 150 years ago. So why do I still own slaves? And the answer is because there aren't the same protections that we have for our workers here in America don't always exist in other countries that develop our goods. That's how we're able to get our iPhones so cheap. In some ways, in our interconnected world, these realities are somewhat unavoidable. It's virtually impossible to identify everywhere in the supply chain that might have utilized labor that 
was paid uh, uh, less than a, uh, a fair wage. It's not always possible to identify where uh, labor is mistreated. It's not always possible to identify where systems of slavery and indentured servitude create cycles of poverty. Not always possible. But in some places, in some industries, it is very easy to identify and therefore very possible to make decisions that will help support and sustain areas in, our, in the developed and developing world that uh, require a little bit more of uh, protection in the marketplace. And so there is a movement that started uh, a, a couple of decades ago called fair trade. I don't know if any of you have heard of fair trade, but fair trade is an important movement. There are different directions that it goes, but ultimately what it tries to do is target industries that are uh, known offenders in the areas that I was mentioning and work with producers of goods to craft products, to create products where they are sharing their resources and sharing profits and providing ownership opportunities to the people who are producing the goods. So some of the areas that, that this is uh, um, notoriously a part is the production of sugar, chocolate, and coffee. Coffee is one that I discovered when I was in Honduras. And that's the one that I'm most, uh, if I'm honest with you, the most punctilious about. Uh, because I saw the effects of non-fair trade coffee on communities in Honduras. And I also saw what buying, supporting producers that utilize the fair trade system, what that does for those communities where the producers utilize the fair trade system. And so I made a commitment to myself. After talking to one of my rabbis, I said, you know, I, I want to buy fair trade coffee. I think it's the right thing to do. Jewishly, it's the right thing to do. Jews have obligations of how we're supposed to treat our workers. But if I don't have workers and I'm supporting somebody else who has workers, I want to support the people who are treating their workers the way Judaism says I should treat my workers if I had them. So he said, you're right. And I said, but fair trade coffee is more expensive than regular coffee, right? So how do I, I gotta live, right? And he said, if you can afford to buy coffee, then you can afford to buy fair trade coffee. Because coffee, like chocolate, like sugar, even though it's in every, you know, sugars in everything we eat, these are, at the end of the day, luxury goods. And if we're buying luxury goods, we should be, prepared not to pay the cheapest possible price, but the fairest possible price for those goods. So if you really believe what you say, what you learn, and what you teach, then you can't let your desire for coffee be an impediment to you supporting and purchasing with your values. And he followed up with a passage from the Talmud that is often misunderstood and misquoted. So there's a passage of the Talmud that says, Kol Yisrael Aramim Zebazet. Every Jew is responsible for every other Jew. But a parallel passage of the Talmud says it a little differently. It says, Kulam Aramim Zebazet. Everyone is responsible for everyone. And that word Aramim doesn't really mean responsible, it means interconnected. So it means that what I do here, how I purchase here, 
what I consume here has an impact on people halfway around the world because we live in an interconnected world. And so I have a responsibility, therefore, to make decisions that aren't going to hurt people in my immediate circle and halfway around the world. That's the power of Kulam Arevin Zevazet. Everybody is interconnected and bound up with everyone else. So I was thinking about this issue this week for two reasons. One, because we read the Torah portion um, asking the Israelites to contribute to the construction of the tabernacle. And it asks it as a free will offering. Everybody bring what they can to construct the tabernacle. But what's important to note there is that if one Israelite didn't contribute something to the building of the tabernacle, the whole structure could have fallen down. That's Kulam Arivim Zebazem. We need each other. We are interconnected with each other. We are therefore responsible for each other. And I was thinking about it because I got a, uh, uh, an email from one of my rabbis who asked me if my congregation wanted to participate um, in a pilot program to bring fair trade coffee into synagogues across the United States. And I said to myself, that is something a synagogue should do. It embodies the values that we teach and we communicate uh, and that we purport to uphold in this place. And so I did the calculations, or I had uh, uh, our office help me with the calculations of what we currently pay for coffee and what we would have to pay in order to have fair trade coffee. And there is a difference. It costs more. That's true. But here's what it costs more. It costs $200 a year more to switch to fair trade coffee from the current coffee that we're using. And what I wanted to offer to us in this room today, or maybe someone you know, is if you believe in this principle of kulam aradim zebazeh, that we have responsibility to people, even not in our immediate circle, even halfway around the world, in order to help them live better lives. If that's a Jewish conviction that you have, and you think your synagogue should embody that conviction, and you have an extra $200 a year lying around, or even for one year lying around, or even if you have $100 and your friend has another $100, you can help us perform an incredible mitzvah and help transform the synagogue uh, to a place that truly lives out the Torah that we teach. The added benefit is that fair trade coffee tends to taste better as well. So I want to put that offer and that challenge to you, to if you are inspired and moved to help uh, lead us in the direction of making the switch to fair trade coffee and helping us live out our values. Come and talk to me after shul. Send me an email during the week. Give me a call. I'd love to talk to you about it. In the meantime, we'll continue. Or you can talk to Jane, our executive director, and, uh, and communicate with her too. In the meantime, Shabbat Shalom.